Hello and welcome to Opika's Innovation in Care Collaboration podcast series. My name is Ken McGill. I'm a solution-focused care senior scientist here at Opika. After serving almost two decades within a statewide children's system of care, there were many lessons learned. The number one lesson, however, that stands out the most was children, youth, and emerging adults were often uh, fragmented in terms of their treatment, their needs, instead of focusing in on the whole person or that a whole individual within the context of their family. So here at Opeka, we provide a person-centered intelligence solutions approach in supporting whole person care in real time. Today's show will be on children's health and mental well-being, a whole person approach. And this session is part of Opeka's Pandemic X series, discussing innovative ways and how to use technology to narrow health inequities. For many, these health disparities were present long before the worldwide pandemic. What COVID did was bring to light what has been systemically marginalized populations in receiving quality care and we, this is happening all throughout the United States. And what we all need to do is play our part in bringing these equities, not just to light, but bringing an end to them, making sure that we are working towards health equity for all. Our special guest during this session, this series, will be Dr. John Lyons, who is the director of the Center for Innovation and Population Health at the University of Kentucky, who has spent his entire career leading the charge for health equity, especially for children, youth, and families involved with systems of care. And today's approach we'll have, and this session we'll have folks on our panel who have invented great ways and technology in supporting innovative whole person care. We must keep in mind, just like physical health, Mental health and childhood focus and should focus on reaching certain developmental and emotional milestones. We want to help children, youth, and emerging adults have healthy social skills, as well as having the ability to cope when there are difficult situations and circumstances. An important goal for all children, youth, and emerging adults is for them to be both physically and mentally healthy so that they can have a positive quality of life functioning at home, in their communities, and at school. And it's absolutely vital that we remember that physical health is not just the absence of illness and disease, just like mental health is not simply the absence of a mental health diagnosis or disorder. And our guests and our special guests will definitely provide a lot of discussion and solutions around that. So thank you again for joining us. Hello, my name is Ken McGill. I'd like to welcome you. This session is Children's Health and Mental Wellbeing, Whole Person Approach. And our panelists today, we actually have amazing thought leaders sharing their time and their expertise. Colleen Leung, who is the founder and CEO of Unmute. Susan McLennan, co-founder and CMO of Wealthy. And Dr. Kate Cordell, co-founder and CEO at Opeka well-being for a child, youth, and emerging adult involves a whole host of things, Just not just behavioral mental health challenges, but also recreation, social, relational, spiritual, physical, nutritional. And we do want this time to be shared with everyone so that we can um, be creative and, and to keep the focus on the whole person. And during our time together, the thought leaders and our special guests We'll share innovative solutions specific uh, in terms of supporting the overall health and well-being for all children, youth, and emerging adults. We need to recognize that there are marginal, uh, marginalized populations that have been marginalized by the larger society. And if we want to truly move towards health equity and, and move towards the impact of social determinants of health and overall well-being, we need to acknowledge that first. And it's my distinct pleasure and honor to introduce our special guest, Dr. John Lyons, who is the director at the Center for Innovation and Population Health. 
the developer of the Communimetric tools, also known as the TCOM uh, tools that are used throughout the uh, country and world. And he's also uh, facilitated an amazing uh, collaborative that's gone worldwide so that we can share and collaborate in a way to best serve everyone, uh, especially the children, youth, uh, emerging adults, and their families and social support. So welcome, Dr. Lyons. I am so here. honored. <laughs> Um, we actually have a, 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 the panel today and your insight in offering um, the amazing um, view that you've shared over your th three plus decades in serving larger systems. So your input is so incredibly uh, needed and, and it's going to be valuable uh, throughout this entire discussion. So thank you. And from this point forward, I'm going to let the panelists introduce themselves and their amazing uh, companies and why they chose to start. So Colleen, would you mind starting us off? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Ken. Hi, everyone. I'm Colleen Leung, co-founder and CEO of Unmute. Uh, at Unmute, what we do is we use machine learning to match patients to the right therapist. And we're really focused on the match quality because the number one indicator of success in therapy is the patient-therapist fit. Yeah, we're finding one in two people are quitting therapy due to lack of therapist fit. And so really that's why we're double downing on getting the match right. And we're especially focused on working with marginalized communities just because we know access is just so much more difficult and challenging for people of those communities. Uh, I started a mute about a year and a half ago, but really had the idea uh, five years prior. Um, so it was at that time my mom became clinically depressed. Um, I'm Chinese American, first gen born here in the States. So my parents are immigrants. Um, so stereotypically, we didn't speak about mental health in my family. So uh, not until I was in my mid-20s that I really understand that I had a mental health. And that was at that time when my mom became pretty severely depressed to the point where she had suicidal thoughts. So I had to fly back home at that time and I thought, hey, I'm just going to find my mom a therapist. They're going to take care of her. She's going to be healed. Um, obviously, that's not how the story went. Um, but long story short, uh, ended up matching my mom or finding my mom a therapist. It was a bad fit. Um, and my mom already had stigma going into therapy. And so she was no longer interested in trying it again. Um, and that's kind of when I realized how critical the fit is um, or getting the match right, especially when you're going to try therapy for the first time and you're coming from a community that may distrust therapy or mental health care. Um, so uh, that's really why we're, um, that was the impetus for me. Um, thanks for having me here today. And that's so important because often people will say, you know, let's find a service delivery or a, a specific uh, intervention. So your work is incredibly uh, valuable and, and invaluable. So thank you. And Susan, would you mind sharing about yourself and your agency, Wealthy? Yes, certainly. Um, what we do at Wealthy is we lift at-risk communities by giving children and those who love them uh, the, the tools that they need to have healthier, happier lives. And essentially what we do is we, we try and cultivate belonging and connection by engaging children and their families in their own health journeys. We often do that through schools. I come to Wealthy from um, children's television, actually. And what I used to do, or what I do still, is um, create projects that are about what kids and families do after the television or the computer is turned off. So our job was to kind of get them outside and creature adventure or play together. Um, and so that's really what we kind of, uh, that's what we brought our, our thinking around. Um, I learned uh, in one moment, um, our whole approach to what we're what we're doing at Wealthy, which is really about engagement, and that was um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Kratt brothers, but they have a, a it's a big PBS brand, Wild Kratts. Uh, Zabumafu. And that was a show I was actually the executive director of that company for a while. And um, in one moment, we had this situation where um, the uh, company, the production company of record that we were working with, the people who were supposed to pay for advertising and all that, they actually went under. So we had to launch a, a show with literally no money. And we had to try and secure a second season. So we knew we had to do a big event and had no money to reach people to come to it. So all we did was we thought we can't do a traditional PR approach. And we knew that we would get about a thousand people if we did the, you know, the traditional PR campaign. So what we did was we, um, we tagged our show and we just had Chris and Martin talk to the kids. And they said, look, 
come out, if you come out, um, we're going to help, you're going to be helping to save grizzly bears. And we let the kids actually choose what animal they wanted to save first. And it was a very, it was a, just a direct feel to kids. So instead of the thousand people that we would ordinarily get at an event with the traditional PR and marketing campaign, we got 30,000. They actually had to shut down the city <laughs> to accommodate <laughs> the massive crowds. And, and the end result was with all these dads were milling around going, I don't know who you are. My kids put me in the car and made me come. Who are you? And two of those dads, one was Mickey Drexler, the CEO of The Gap, who, and The Gap had ignored our, our request for, um, for corporate sponsorship. And, and, and the other was Steve Jobs. And the end result was we got our money really quickly to do the tour that we wanted because their kids made them. And in that moment, we really understood the agency of children. So that's the, the kind of work that we um, are doing with Wealthy is really empowerment of children and families in their own health journey. That is great. And again, everyone has a story and we often want to make sure we're listening to the, the children, youth and emerging adults. That's really great. Thank you. And Kate, uh, would you mind sharing um, your background and, and that of Apica? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Ken. Um, yeah, so at Opeka, we do something called care collaboration. You might hear some the word care coordination used a lot. And care coordination is about kind of handing off uh, a referral from, from one provider to another, but care collaboration goes beyond coordination. It really is about working off the same sheet of music and planning together for kids to support the whole kid, the whole child. So it's about the teacher working with the counselor, working with the primary care uh, physician, working with um, a social worker if necessary, or a justice um, representative, if that child has some uh, legal involvement. It's really about for kids who um, maybe have a higher level of need and many multidisciplined uh, providers working together to understand how they can best work together to support that child and that family. And that's really what we do is we bring information together, provide it in a whole person view and allow folks to collaborate with judicious sharing of information because we know not all information can be shared and some you know, could be stigmatizing, but a very judicious sharing of information so that we can better collaborate around uh, supporting kids and families. And that's what we do at Opeka. That's incredible. And uh, Dr. Lyons, John, I, 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 while I was listening to these three thought leaders, um, I have a view because I've known you for uh, almost two decades and see things through a TCOM or transformational collaborative outcomes management lens. Um, when I heard Colleen, Susan and Kate just share, um, for me, it resonated TCOM. It, it had collaboration. It had it had voice. It had um, <laughs> a lot of great stuff. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Just hearing the uh, the tip of the iceberg on this. Well, yeah, Tim. So, I'm, uh, first of all, I'm humbled by the uh, amazing work that these uh, three incredible women and in their companies are doing. I think. Uh, uh, each, they're each different. And so I, I, my heart responds in different ways for each of them. But, you know, you're absolutely right, Colleen, that there's this belief that you go to the therapist and all therapists are the same. And if you don't, it doesn't work out with the therapist you go to, there's something wrong with you. And that's not necessarily true because all of our work is relational. And so if you can increase the odds a little bit, of getting a good match, then that's a really powerful positive thing. And if you can combine it with a notion that of empowered consumers that you can choose, if this doesn't work, you can try somebody else and we'll give you another, you know, those kind of things. That's really powerful and important. And using technology, the other thing about the one thing that you all have in common is the use of technology. And so I'm old. And so for the longest time, public behavioral health in particular, I mean, Grocery stores have or have better technology, right, than any public health clinic in the United States, right? It's appalling lack of using the power of technology. What was really struck me, Susan, about your work is, you know, most mental health interventions are designed based on what we found worked for white European upper class women, and that may not actually be true of people from other 
cultural backgrounds, right? And other places. And, and, you know, does a young black man in Compton have much in common with a, you know, somebody who, a white rich in Connecticut, right? And so thinking through of how you actually enter people's lives and meet them where they are and understand what they're doing within that culture is really, really powerful and important. And, and having alternative ways of thinking about well-being is so valuable. And of course, Kate, well, I, I know your company's work for a long time. And so what's really powerful, you've done the best job of, so, you know, I, I use the term TCOM and I pretend that it's my idea perhaps, but it's not, right? It just comes from the field. And there's a large number of people who are doing TCOM without needing the label, right? If, if you care, if you want to make a system that cares rather than a system of care, then you're actually doing TCOM. So it doesn't matter what you call it, keep doing it. And you guys at Opica does that, right? You are creating a technology that supports a system that has at least the capacity to care. And I think that's powerfully important. So I'm struck by all three of you. You're all amazing in your own right and a little bit different ways, which is cool too. And that's what's great about the larger collaborative. Um, during my uh, time and seeing it uh, just focus on most of the mandated systems uh, and then seeing it, um, uh, you know, we talked about schools or we've had conversations before and different systems that might not have more traditionally come to the plate and, and, uh, and, and been part of a, the team. So this is, this is a great conversation. Uh, our first question though, it really, I think resonates with what we just discussed in terms of how can we better engage children, youth, emerging adults in their own health journeys. And by their own health journeys, that means we're serving them, not the other way around. And especially um, those marginalized groups that have been marginalized by the larger society, including people of color, Asian Americans and LGBTQ plus uh, groups. Um, who would like to take this uh, this first question and um, and run with it? I'll make it more democratic or more um, open to. Well, we'll we'll all have a chance to address the question. Absolutely. Uh, I'm happy to start it. And, and I would say that, um, you know, for us, it really comes down to uh, that sense of engagement, belonging and connection and solutions that are just top down, we don't think works. They, they don't work anymore. Um, people value what they co-create much more than what is imposed on them. And people believe what they discover more than uh, what they're told. And um, also people trust what they don't have to think about when it just makes sense. So I think ensuring that, um, that kids and emerging adults have um, not just a seat at a table, but that they are co-creating some of these solutions with us and that we're uh, we are learning as much or more than we are teaching. Uh, and at Wealthy, you know, we're Black and women-led, and we are really, um, we're very conscious of, of those who are left behind, of listening for quieter voices, of ensuring that people who may not be included are included, and looking for really creative ways to ensure that um, that we are there for them and that they have uh, that uh, that others have the opportunity to show up so even in our mental health work um, what we're doing right now is putting together a program that is extremely participatory. We have resources that have been vetted by professionals and experts and all of that, and, and in some cases uh, created by them, but that they're really peer reviewed. But I think one of the more exciting aspects for us is that um, we're engaging kids in, in expression around mental health and their own mental health journeys. And uh, whatever that looks like for them, whether it's through art, whether it's through song, whether it's uh, um, through a piece of literature, and then we're pairing them with, with top mentors. You know, we come from the television world, um, so you know we can we can vet video and script and, and whatever they want. But we also have friends at Pixar, at Disney. We can pair them with these fantastic artists. So so not just kind of having it out there flat, but having a world where expression and and, and discussion and where these things are normalized and not stigmatized and where and where uh, where kids and emerging adults have the opportunity to to be heard and to shape the direction that we're going in. 
Yes, do you think, I think you bring up a really good point around the whole education piece. I think back to the time like when I was in, in school. So I'm, I'm turning 30 this year, the big 3-0. I'm a little afraid, but if I, you know, um, rewind to maybe a couple decades ago, I don't even remember mental health being brought up in the school system. I'm, I'm sure it's different today. I hope it's different today. I don't have kids right now, so I'm not sure. Um, and maybe you know a little bit more about this, Susan and Kate. Um, but I think that's that's critical, the educational piece. And so at education, and I think, Susan, you also mentioned this, the personalization, right, of care. And so we're also doing this at Unmute. Um, so every time you um, a user comes in, they get paired up with what we call a therapist who's a case manager, this person helps to educate the individual of what to expect in therapy, because about 30% of our users are first-time therapy seekers. And someone like me, when I was helping my mom find a therapist, I knew nothing about therapy. I had no idea what would happen behind those closed doors. I didn't know what she should say. And I couldn't educate my mom on, on like an immigrant on like, what are you supposed to talk to your therapist about? How are they going to help guide you? Um, and so that's kind of when we realized the team, how critical it was to have a therapy buddy guide you along your journey and, and help personalize that guidance, right? Um, so I think the education and the, the personalization is really key. Yeah, yeah, thank you guys. Uh, I, I do have a teen, I have two teenagers in high school right now. And my son just yesterday said to me, yeah, mom, everybody's depressed, everybody. And I was like, well, what does that mean? Like everybody's depressed, are, are you depressed? You know, and he's like, no, I'm all right, but everybody's depressed, you know, like, but how do we engage the, you know, these kids into this conversation about what does that mean to be depressed? And not only that, when they do get matched to therapy or they do go into therapy, if, if, you know, we're able to engage them, what do they expect to get out of it? What does success look like for them? How do we hear their voice? Because I feel like traditional therapy is all about giving control over to the therapist to, to figure out and, and you know, use their, their magic to heal you, which you don't even know what that means, right? Or what, what's the point of that? And so how do we just, how do, I mean, even as adults now, how do we describe to children, especially those um, who may be reticent to, go into therapy that it's going to be helpful in what way what will they get out of it how will they benefit how will their voice be heard and i think it's really important that we begin to change the language we use um, around therapy and about therapy and about mental health to talk about what is success and what is a voice what is their children's voice like what if if my son were to go to therapy i'd say to him <clears throat> what would you want to get out of it? Oh, maybe it's more ability to concentrate during your class, or maybe it's the ability to, when you're on the, you know, part of the football team that you, you feel like you can engage in conversation in the locker room, you know, and you don't, you're not, you have less social anxiety about that. Like it, but what is it, you know, how can we operationalize and make it a concrete benefit that they will get out of going versus voodoo magic? Absolutely. And John, I know that uh, we often talked about having a shared vision. So when I hear TheraBuddy um, and I see, I hear personalized, the individual and, and having the voice, uh, voices heard throughout this process. Um, I love to hear, you know, in terms of um, what you've seen. Uh, yeah, I was by a couple of things. I was struck a lot by what you said, Susan, because I think, uh, you know, I'm so calling 30 is good. <laughs> enjoy 30 right so i almost kind of remember 30 i can remember 40 a little bit more clearly so i have actually been working for 41 years so working i've had my phd for 41 years right so and so i have a lot of experience and what i've come to understand is my experience means nothing to anybody else it literally means nothing it's important to me it's who i am but my experience means nothing it's other people's experiences. So you have to create other people's experiences. You have to help them create their experience because it's their experience that matters. And that's what I was struck by what you're saying. It's very similar actually to what uh, Colleen and Kate, you were also talking about. And so to put language on it, to put some academe on it, um, we are, I'm a uh, devotee of a couple of economists, Pine and Gilmore. And they're the ones that 
really kind of gave the idea for the distinction between a service system and a transformational system being a fundamental distinction. And one of the points they make in a book called The Experience Economy is that if you're going to have a transformation, it has to start with a profound personal experience. But you have to do that as a business, right? And a business tends to do mass production. Schools tend to be the ultimate mass producer. Here's our curriculum and we'll crank you through and we'll pretend all of you are widgets in this process. And we know that's not true. We know that different people come to different places at different times. And so they talk about mass customization as the business model that can work in our space of helping people change, recognizing differences, but still having to build on the fact that you have to have some commonalities. Otherwise, you can't get everything, anything done because if everybody was truly different, there'd be nothing we could do to help, right? because we'd learn nothing from anybody's experience. So you look for the commonalities and recognize the differences and you create a mass customization. I think all three of you are approaching that kind of challenge. You may not use that language, but that's what you're doing is you're trying to figure out how can I mass customize this approach so that it can work at scale, but it's still as sensitive to the fact that different people have to have their own experience. So I applaud you for that. Yeah, I, I also just want to say that at Opika, we developed something called uh, skill sketches. And they're little coloring sheets. I'll put them in the, or maybe. Uh, I love this. Yeah, yeah or maybe yeah, Samantha can. Yeah. But you can download, they're just free coloring sheets for kids to kind of track their progress in, in anything, in skills or in care, to kind of identify what it is their goals are in care and then color code their progress and, and use these coloring sheets to track that. So I just put it in the, yeah, I just put it in the um, chat if you want to take a look at that. By the way, we talk about those for kids. I bet you anything adults like that too. Just <laughs> guessing. Absolutely. <laughs> We're just big kids, I guess. And and keeping in mind too, that the, uh, the cans of the uh, child, adolescent needs and strengths, there's an adult version, a family version. So we do want people to recognize that these are, um, open to use by um, people who are trained in using the uh, the tools. So we'll also put in the um, the chat um, how you can learn more about the uh, the mass customizing that uh, Dr. Lyons talks about. And our next question, you know, in terms of how can we use the opportunity and this really in our in our time on uh, in history, this is a great opportunity, even though we're, we're dealing with a lot um, of providing whole person care to lift the health of the family and community around the specific child, youth or emerging adult. Um, you know, so how can we use this in a specifically to impact social determinants of health, which is often the key phrase. So I'll throw that question out um, to anyone who wants to take the first uh, um, to go at it. Sure, I can. Uh, I can take the first go at this one. Um, you know, I think what we try to do again with collaborative care versus coordinated care is capture the voice of um, not only the child and the youth, but the family as well. Um, because the child and youth live in the environment of the family. And uh, whether that's uh, foster youth that are living in, you know, the environment of um, a family where they've been placed or children and youth living with their own family, um, I just think about uh, the story of um, a, young, a young child who is uh, six years old coming to school and, and having a real hard time transitioning into school um, out of Chicago, this was a young young boy in Chicago, and you know when he got to school, he'd start flipping desks and you know just really melting down. And when they school finally did engage with um, him and his family, rather than just you know give him you know suspensions, basically, they found out that uh, his he was his he had a single mom and she would go to school, uh, excuse me, go to work in the morning. And he had to get his uh, three, four-year-old uh, little sibling ready and get him and his um, four-year-old brother out the door. So you have a four and a six-year-old being the adult of a four-year-old, you know, getting them to school. And maybe there were only, you know, 30 minutes of unsupervised time, but it was just a lot of responsibility for this young man to take on. So when he had to transition from being an adult at home, 
at six years old to being a child and following directions at school at six years old, he couldn't make that transition. And, and so the school ended up um, identifying ways, uh, obviously, to support the family for the unmet social need there of that child care, um, but as well as to help him transition into school by giving him 15 minutes of time to uh, get an energy out. So run or bike or this uh, this energy was what they found for this particular young child really helped him um, make that transition from, okay, I need to be responsible for my little brother. Okay, now I need to be, um, you know, responsible with my behavior to uh, an older adult. And uh, and in that way, it's just it's meeting that unmet social need, but doing it in a personal way to really understand that child's uh, situation rather than just saying this is a bad child with bad behavior, flipping tables and being aggressive. So um, I think if we can engage, you know, and think about a child's story, whether that be their traumatic experience their, um, you know, their family situation, their community safety situation, you know, the fact that they maybe don't get to eat breakfast or didn't eat dinner last night um, into what we think about in terms of behavior at school, then there's a lot more creative ways that we can uh, be uh, supportive of that child and that family. And so that's really, you know, at Opico, what we try to do is we... Uh, automate the ability to capture those different pieces of information with really flexible ways to ask those questions. You know, what, if you could set up a set of questions for kids with behavior, it may be, you know, were they, what was, what was their, um, breakfast? What was their dinner? You know, what did they do before coming to school? And really getting that whole person picture so that you can not just deal with the behavior in the moment, but be able to be deal with, um, or support the entire child and family. Well, we, ha we have a, a similar approach, I would say, Kate, um, you know, we we kind of marry family engagement, health education, school services and virtual care. And we have a platform that lets all of that connect and, and work together uh, along with kind of empowering the child. I guess for, for me, I really think about it as um, uh, it, it, we want to create communities because you have to do a lot less work if a child feels that they belong, if they are naturally uh, engaged and they have a sense of connection. Those transitions happen super quickly. Um, and and Ken, um, you said something and that is like, oh, I guess we're all big kids. And I think that's actually a big part of it. You know, I think we've got it reversed. We try and treat kids as, as little adults. And and they are not little adults. Sure. You know, even in 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 child and childhood cancer, they actually don't even have childhood cancer drugs. They just kind of parse out and 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 guess at what at what drugs are for for pediatric cancer because there just isn't that investment. And we actually have to flip. It, ironically, if you invest in childhood cancer, you discover more about adult cancers, and you discover nothing about childhood cancers if you if you do the research into adults. That's a bit of a digression, mm -hmm. but it's really emblematic of, of how everything that we do is reversed from what it should be. We actually need to be thinking about adults. There's all that little, that we are all little children inside. Our emotional responses are all driven from things that happened a long time ago. Um, and it goes back, you know, to John's point about uh, that, uh, everything coming out of that big transformational moment. And often that was a long time ago or in a lot of that was driven by childhood. Um, so we uh, we really have to think about um, we really have to think uh, just flip our whole thinking around around children and adults. Just to add on that, um, often like when I personally think about whole person care, physical gets siloed out by itself, and there's a lot of focus on that, right? And just the intersection between all these other points, um, yeah. like behavioral or mental health, is just starting to merge, right? Government health insurance um, claims, policies are just, we're just starting to see that intersection, right? And so I think that's the critical piece. What can we do as individuals? Perhaps we can have more conversations with one another, um, marriaging all these intersections, right? Between physical, behavioral, spiritual, financial, social, emotional. I think that's critical, but also to be advocates in, in our communities, right? 
medical, I mean, medical reimbursement rates are much higher than mental health reimbursement rates. And, and that disparity is probably how we're seeing, why we're seeing a non, a not social person care approach today in the work um, and in the medical field. Um, so I think there's a lot of advocacy that needs to be done. A lot of talk around where, where physical health is beyond just physical medical health. Like I have a pain on my arm, but how about if I have a pain inside, right? Emotional pain, that's pain as well. That's also, that may require medical help as well too. So I think the normalization of that intersection is key in the work that we're all doing. Um, you're absolutely right. And and one thing also that I, I meant to mention and, and didn't, and that is that we, we really need to recognize and, and realize that children are the agents of change, you know, um, that they, no social movement has really taken off until kids have gotten involved. If you look at recycling, if you look at uh, uh, drinking and driving, if you look at the current um, environmental movement, um, seat belts, anything, anything, a lot of this health related as well. It's only when kids have a sense of purpose and when they have agency that things change. So I think acknowledging that if we want to lift the whole family, it generally doesn't, I mean, top down is important, but it really comes bottom up and recognizing that and empowering that and helping kids find a sense of purpose around the really important things that need to be changed. And along with that, you know, we have to invest in, in prevention. It hasn't been profitable to invest in prevention. So a lot of companies don't do that. But if we are serious, if we don't want to just talk the talk, if we actually want to walk that talk, we have to get serious about prevention and not just responding. Beautifully said. So I, I have a bunch of different pieces and parts of this. Let me, let me jump on the prevention thing first, because I think it's a really important point. And so the challenge with prevention, so I've, I've come and gone through so many different phases of prevention becoming timely and important, probably three different cycles, and we're entering another cycle. Here's the problem. Prevention is a losing proposition in the sense that you're saying, I'm going to do something so something bad doesn't happen. And if you have a successful prevention program, that something bad doesn't happen, and then it gets defunded, because why should we spend money on something yeah. that doesn't happen? So we yeah. have to change the frame. And I think what we're finding is Prevention is actually transformational. Prevention yeah. is strength building. And what we really have to invest in is giving kids opportunities, just like you're doing. Actually, you're all actually doing it. Just the opportunities to build strengths, because I think that is functionally prevention, but it doesn't fall under the trap of it not doing anything. Exactly. Right. And, so, and part of it comes down to purpose. You have to give kids that sense of purpose and then they're connected. They have a sense of belonging. I love what you said about where change comes from, because the way I would react to all three of you is that I agree that we can do things as a group within our space to help. But I do think it's rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, uh, frankly, uh, because the bigger societal problems are getting in the way of this. I mean. It's, I think it's noble that uh, the two billionaires that you met at the, at the event uh, gave you some pocket change for your program, right? But how many billions is enough, right? Exactly. How many billions is enough? How many billions do I have to have to feel like I'm a success? And we have an increasingly, increasingly, dichotomous distribution of wealth. And we have a small number of, which is gonna end up poorly. Every culture in the history of civilization that allows that to be that dramatic a shift between a small number of very, very wealthy people and a large number of people who are struggling, it doesn't end well. And so we better figure that out actually for our own good. And I think that's a fundamental issue. And then I throw one more small quiet revolution which is, uh, we sponsor a podcast called Shift Shift Bloom. It's about how people change. And we have a guest coming on who had a traumatic brain injury. And she said something in her interview. It's not out yet, but it's coming. But she said something that I found profound and I hadn't really ever thought about it. And she said, there's no such thing as recovery. Recovery doesn't exist. You don't recover. It's not like you're going back to some prior state that you were before. 
you're going forward to a new version of yourself. And the, the concept of recovery actually gets in the way of what the actual process of personal transformation is. And I thought, wow, that's an important point uh, because I think so much of our world is like, you've got this disorder and we're gonna fix you and you're gonna go back to what you're like before you had the disorder. I call BS. I don't think that's, I mean, I have multiple family members with serious mental illness. That's not how it works. You become a new version of yourself. And so I think anything we can do, but it sounds like what we have to do is get kids to buy into that and then wait. So I'm going to count on you all to make sure that happens as I kind of wave goodbye to this life. So anyway, but it's the long game, but I think it's the long game that wins. Right? You know what? I, I don't think it is the long game. Oh, because when I love kids, your when, no, when kids have a sense of purpose, they change things immediately. It's, you know, the long game is waiting for adults to do something. Yeah, Short game is giving is helping a helping a kid, uh, inspiring a kid to find their sense of purpose because they will go out and make change happen right away. That I mean, look at Greta Thunberg. Look at at Somet and Malala. Look at all these kids. They, all of a sudden, people listen to things that nobody would listen to before. Look at your own community activities. It's when kids take it on. Look at your own family. Look at your own self. Probably you were the one who got your parents to start recycling because it mattered to you. You were going to champion the environment. I and got my dad into therapy, just like uh, Colleen. So <laughs> that's how it works. That's the short game: is getting to kids, inspiring that sense of purpose. Yeah. I think this is great, and it really is the essence of transformational and collaborative outcomes management. I, I, I think of the tools themselves, John, where it's focused in on home, school, and community for the younger, and then the home, working community for the young at heart, I'll say, and, and building strengths. Uh, I think that's a, an important piece that can have such an impact on the social determinants and moving forward so that everyone can achieve their we're uh, finding actually building strengths is far more important than addressing needs. There you go. That's I mean that's what our research from all our different uh, applications are are suggesting is that the sustainable outcome of behavioral health interventions is helping young people build strengths because they're going to have needs, right? Absolutely. Those don't go away. And learning how do how we make that? Yeah. How do we make that viral for kids? How do is it a TikTok that we need to make? <laughs> I don't know. So long as I don't have you to get that, kids to, that's what we're we're building right now is is it's not doing something to them for them it is with them by them for them right it is very much driven by them it's not just oh let's consult you on what this should be it is like all right let me help you realize your vision <laughs> it's it's a very it's a very flipped from our our current reality but that's what it takes what about a wealthy after school program? Like, you know, kids can do SAD, which was Students Against Drunk Driving back when it was in my day, or they could yeah. do debate club. What if they did wealthy? Well, that's that's, that's our dream. We, you know, we are just pulling together funding, but that is absolutely what we are all about is, is pulling together those opportunities for kids to have that purpose and to help schools build it right into their DNA. Right. So it's not something that they do. It's who they are. Right. That's fantastic. Wonderful. And that's what I love about this. Uh, the more I learn about the mass challenge and the pandemic X uh, in terms of, you know, we're, we're this is a time where we can throw away the box and do things so innovatively that we don't need to, to be constrained by um, what we've done in the past and feel like there's certain things that we need to uh, keep constrained. So very inspiring. And our, our Last question uh, for the larger group is um, if we had uh, like one, what's one shift we could make that would immediately improve the health of children, youth and young adults, uh, especially those young people who had the highest prevalence of need, but are not in care. So this, I think, really just springboards into a, another conversation that uh, um, building upon what we had before. Who would like to? I can kick us off. Um... So for us, what we're finding from our users, so we're finding 18 to 25 year olds have the highest prevalence of, mental, of any mental illness, but they're also the largest age group not seeking out mental health services. So we spoke to a bunch of young people. Um, most of our users are younger um, adults. And, and it's, there's this lack of immediate access for young folks, right? So we're so used to, or they are so used to, 
um, swiping left and right, right, and getting whatever they need from a touch of a button. But when it comes to mental health care, it's not that easy. It's not that straightforward. One, because we spoke about this earlier, the educational piece is missing. But to maybe when you're ready to take action, what do you do? Where are you supposed to go? And so I think that's when community comes in is important. But existing, like when you're searching for a therapist, what did I do? The first thing I did was go on my mom's health insurance site. You go on Blue Cross Blue Shield site, go to provider directory search. But when you're there, uh, all you get is a name and a phone number and an address. Maybe you'll get a gender identity, but if you're lucky. And so you just go from the top down, right? You go to the A-list and you reach out to them. But it's so personal when it comes to mental health that you know the number one indicator of success is is that fit right with your therapist that's gonna once you get that fit right you're more likely to succeed in therapy so if we're just going down a b c d and calling these folks up that's just that's just not logical to get the match right a way for a way to get the match right um and so i for us what we're finding as we speak to young people is that they they don't have access to these resources they don't know where to go and so that's why even though we know younger people are speaking more openly about mental health care, and there, there is less stigma in that generation, um, access, immediate access just isn't there. It isn't there for them. It's not readily available. Can I ask a question or is it, am I going off script? Yeah, uh, a question for, for Colleen, Colleen, cause yeah. I think what your point is really important. It struck an idea. So one of the things we run into all the time is we'd love to match therapists, but you got one choice. You know, if you're in rural Idaho and you live in a particular area, you're going to the clinic and there's only one the one therapist that has a slot. So good luck matching it. But the the supply, a matching protocol requires a match between supply and demand. And if you do look at a map of where therapists are, they're not always where people with mental health needs are, right? They're where they like to go to work and they're they're typically in large urban areas. And so as you get into the mental health needs. Now we learned something really important in with COVID is you don't have to be physically co-located to be able to be helpful. And so is there a way to use your technology to match expertise for people who are sitting in Boston uh, for a, a, a young trans individual in Boise? Right. Is there some way of us thinking about using technology so we can actually better match supply and demand? Because mm -hmm. it's the supply and demand match that gets in the way of your strategy, always, at okay. least in the public sector. Yeah, so there is the technology, but can the technology be used? Not, not right now, because there are licensure um, restraints. So therapists can only see clients that are sitting, physically sitting in the same state that they're licensed in. And so, so we need to burn down that law. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but alternatively, we're looking, you know, we're a small, we're a small team, we're a startup, we're looking at innovative ways. So how can we address that issue? So something that we're looking to implement the coming weeks is peer support groups. So can we match our users to the right peer support groups? And there's been a lot of studies that have um, shown the efficacy of peer um, support group models and how that helps and benefits and is preventative in, in more serious mental illnesses. So I'm going to meet with the CMS's uh, Center for Innovation um, next week. Do you mind if I mention this problem to them? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Laws exist that are written by people, so they can <laughs> be unwritten by people. Right? right. And prior to COVID, there was no option to do telehealth in, in exactly. therapy. So you were really limited to your zip code, those, those five digits. And we've actually done some research demonstrating that you actually get the same outcomes mm -hmm. in telehealth that you get in in person. And in fact, it eliminates transportation as a need that gets in the way of, of outcomes. So, so I think there's a good opportunity to build on that to change some laws. This would yeah. be a moment in time or maybe it's a good time to go after it. Agreed. Great question, John. I think you bring up something super important, uh, Dr. Lyons, which is why I love your work so much. Um, and that is you just brought up the outcomes, right? The outcomes that the kids get. How are we identifying those outcomes generally? Now, the reason I love your work, Dr. Lyons, is because you, you operationalize that. You're able to say, 
you know, here are the outcomes. There were outcomes related to this engagement with the therapist. There were these skills, these coping skills built. There were these, you know, anxiety areas addressed. There was this family strength built. Um, and, and now we can say, okay, for, for kiddos that look like this and have this, you know, background need or this identity questioning that, that this particular therapist has good outcomes with kids who are struggling in life in these areas. Cause as we know, not every match is a great match as Colleen says. And so, but how would you ever know that this therapist would be a bad match a priori with this youth, unless you understood how that therapist's outcomes looked with similar youth. And I just think it's so important we get to the point in our field, our mental health field, where we don't accept minutes of service as the outcome, which is the current way that we measure mental health service right now. Well, they got this many minutes of service. They should be great. That's just not going to cut it anymore. We have to have more accountability in mental health and therapy to prove that young people are benefiting from that therapy and to prove that not only are they benefiting, but they're benefiting for their own youth-driven goals, that they have a goal that they were trying to meet in therapy and that that goal is being met for them. So um, I, that's just why I, part of the reason why I love your work, Dr. Lyons, because you help young people have a voice to set those goals through your assessments. Um, and that's why, you know, we're so excited to be able to promote that TCOM approach. Well, and that's a beauty about PICA because you have then the, the technology platform to actually allow that to actually happen which is as equally important to having the concept is to have the technology to make it happen, right? Those are hand in glove, mutual admiration society. Eh? Yeah, thanks. Well, there's a future, I mean, the future is technology. We just can't Absolutely. be on paper anymore uh, for anything we do. I, I, I bought a car the other day and they were trying to use technology. They didn't do a very good job of it, but they were trying to. <laughs> They're like, everybody's got to use technology. We're not doing any more paper. And they gave me, when I left, they gave me a uh, a stick, not a not a folder of paper, a data stick. Um, I wanted to address that point, but Ken, would you mind if I shared my screen very briefly? Sure. Let would me, that be uh, possible? I need a cover. Oh, everything's possible. Let's see how the technology. Um, <laughs> okay. I'm stop sharing. And then I believe you can. Okay, let me uh, screen sharing is a new definition it. of voice in the post <laughs> It still says that host has disabled participant screen sharing. So the other can might be um, able to make that happen behind the scenes. And again, this is another uh, avenue to support the importance of team. Um, <laughs> it takes a village. It really, really does. Yeah. So I'll start talking about my point and I'll keep checking because it's such a great image that I would love to share with you all. I hadn't planned on it, but it, it fits exactly with what we said, what, what we're talking about. But, you know, um, school, and this has come up before, schools were invented 150 years ago. They are not designed for this current time. Uh, kids are not um, running running farms. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I think somebody's saying you have to make me a co-host. That is true. That would do it. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, kids are not uh, are not who they were. We have to recognize that. And essentially, um, yeah, I still can't do it. Uh, but yeah. essentially, um, to to your point, John, we have to burn everything down. We have to have the courage. And if the pandemic, if this moment hasn't given us that courage, then nothing will, and we're going to hell in a handbasket. This is the moment. This is the moment to reimagine everything. Um, I can't share the link. It's in a PowerPoint. Okay. Um, so it's actually in something and that we have designed so I can't okay. um, but um, but we literally have to have that courage we have to say all right um, we have to have the courage to, uh, Kate to your point we have to um, we have to do things like we have to start measuring the right things to your point we're we're measuring all the wrong things we're measuring time spent as opposed to what is actually working and outcomes and it's it's the same you know we need to be measuring um uh, the, the sense of belonging and community and 
engagement. And those things are measurable. We need to, to be talking to kids and getting their sense of self and identity we, because, and their sense of purpose, because that's when they learn. They learn through those things. And I still can't do it. I wish I could show it to you, but it is the most fantastic, beautifully redesigned image of Elmo with the world burning down around him. <laughs> We can actually we can actually share that with the um, once this is over we can send it out. Oh yes, send it out. It's really fun. Um, it's a really fun image, but it really is. This has to be the moment where we find our courage, where we try and do things differently. If it doesn't take a global pandemic to give us that courage, to give us that moment, to give us that permission to try and dare, and not just do more of what we've done before, which we know doesn't work, then uh, then there's no hope for us. But there there has to be hope, and that hope is trying these new things and and putting time and care into reimagining what doesn't work into what works. I can't think of a better person than Nomo to be the uh, uh, the spokesperson for hope. Um, <laughs> I would have said Cookie Monster, but I think I'm an Nomo fan too. So thank you. <laughs> I want to make sure everyone um, had an opportunity to um, to to uh, share on this uh, this point. Was it Elmo or was it Grover with the monster at the end of this book? I think it was Grover. <laughs> that was one of my kids' favorite books. I don't think Elmo was around when they wrote that book yet, but great. We can learn a lot. And these are the days, and, and uh, it's funny, when it just popped in my head where when the pandemic started and I thought it was going to be a two-week time frame and everything was going to go back to, quote, unquote, whatever normal was or typical, uh, those are the days where um, Mr. Rogers and the, the times where you think back and how it, there was wonderful things to do in the neighborhood and uh, we were all kind of lost not knowing what to do. So I think the pandemic is a very good model of what the uh, Michelle, I can't think of her last name at the moment, was making her point about recovery. We are not going to recover from the pandemic. In fact, we don't even want to recover from the pandemic. We want to learn from it and move forward, adapting based on what we learned to be a new Absolutely, new society, right? I mean, that, that's our opportunity. That's and that's everybody's opportunity is to learn from their experiences moving forward to be continuing to adapt, absolutely, and lead their best lives, right? So that's really what it's about. And we do. I agree with you, Susan. We have to move away from how many you know is engagement going ten sessions or twelve sessions? I mean, no, no. Engagement is getting what you want out of your experience so that you are in a better place than where you started, that you're happier, healthier, safer, able to pursue your dreams. And, and that's what our work should be about. Ken, I don't know if you can show it now, but uh, the Biden unity agenda from the um, State of the Union address last night, they made some announcements this week. Um, there's there's um, data out that's showing um, some just, just terrible numbers around children showing that... Uh, for young uh, female adolescent girls, uh, the attempted suicide is up 51%. Um, and it's showing that, uh, you know, children are five months behind in math than prior to the pandemic, um, that there's persistent feelings of sadness uh, among our youth. And, you know, w whether this is, I can only imagine a large part of this is the fact that they were just building their understanding of the world when that rug just got ripped out from underneath them. Right. You know, we're a little bit older here and we know that um, things aren't predictable and, and life will throw curveballs at you. But this is probably the biggest curveball that many of our youth have ever seen. And then you throw onto that all the discussions around climate change and, you know, and unrest and, and, and war, potential war. And I think our youth are just facing um, a lot to think about. That's really, really hard to process. And at 1230 today, there is a, uh, which Samantha will share in the chat, there is a um, webinar that Health and Human Services is putting on to talk about this, um, the national mental health crisis right after we speak here. So just wanted to announce that there hopefully will be more attention and more um, thought around what we can do uh, as, a, as a nation to address these concerns. Thank you, Samantha, for putting that in. I tried to bring it up on the screen and 
You did. Uh, you brought it up. Thank you. All right. And uh, let's get back to the. I think we only had about five minutes. Um, so what I just want to comment that I love Samantha's uh, Zoom profile picture because it looks like an action photo of her on Zoom. So. Thank you. Thank you. And really, I was going to say, really, at the the um, um, the final thoughts area, um, in terms of from the the uh, chat room, Samantha, and I, I really appreciate um, having this on a different screen has thrown me a little bit off. Uh, so I've really been leaning on you. So thank you for being a an amazing team member <laughs> or team lead. Thanks, was there Jen. anything that we, we saw in the chat that we might want to, before we get oh. to the let's. Yeah, let me read out some stuff that we have from the chat here. So from our conversations happening earlier, um, I do want to mention this webinar is recorded and everybody will get an email once it, the recording is rendered and ready to view on our website. Um, we have a comment from Janet. Amen. You're lucky to find any therapist in Idaho, let alone rural Idaho. Insurance plans have to be willing to actually pay providers who are not in the state. Telehealth has significantly helped that, but not Medicaid. Uh, maybe our panelists can talk a little bit more about that. Um, we also have a comment from uh, Janet earlier saying that education is so critical and education by people actually receiving the services your education is important. And then, um, you know, provide, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, culturally sensitive guides to organically address mental health at homes with adults, family members, and loved ones. And include this early on in children's engagement, learning programs, tools, and TV shows, et cetera. So this is just a comment a little bit about uh, what Susan was talking about earlier in really reaching out on all those platforms. And um, that's all I have for now, Ken, right okay. back at you. I'm actually gonna um, stop sharing so I can everyone can see the panelists, uh, uh, everyone who's uh, who's shared with us today. Um, so yeah. My final thought is I just wanna know what's the call to action? I feel like Susan's gonna answer this, but what is our call to action? You know, like, are we making a TV show or, you know, how do we, we are. <laughs> take that next, I figured you were, but how do we take that next step and really, you know, I mean, I know that all of us are uh, on this panel are trying to innovate in ways to um, make an impact in this area, but it, it, what do we do next? Well, I, I will jump in if you don't mind. And that is that I, I, you know, it's not just a TV show. It's kind of a like we are creating a digital experience that is driven by kids, but it's not uh, and it, it would benefit by everybody here. Um, you know, being part of that, we're uh, looking for, we have funding for one thing, but we are looking for funding to pull this together. But we know um, from our own experience, I mean, we create Emmy award winning shows. We know that it is about what happens when the TV's turned off and that amazing things can happen. So, and that the, the last frontier, education has to be reinvented. And we know that it has to come from kids. Yes, top down, we can all talk about it and we can form committees and it can take two, you know, but we we if we can get kids directly engaged in this vision of changing the world and of changing their own health and their own health outcomes, because schools have to become those hubs for wellness, right? That's at wherever that's where we can reach the most number of children and let it eddy out for there. And then the important work, Opika, that you're doing with kids in care, you know, with the foster system. All of that, we need to be thinking about how all of these ecosystems work together and where we can tear down the boundaries and, and putting kids first so that we are, it's not like, well, this is our organized, get out of these boxes and just start cross-pollinating uh, and bringing kids right into the center of this equation. That's, uh, that's, that's what we want to do. I love it. I love it. I have to hop off you guys, but you feel free to continue the conversation. Have, can I have one That's last thought? Because as, as you go, uh, Kate, so I think the thing you do is you all keep doing what you're doing, because I think what you're doing is really important. And if you continue it and you keep communicating and you keep, you know, our space is a win-win space. 
that there's no win-lose, right? And if we all keep working and we keep supporting each other, then we can all make a difference together and singular. And I think that's how these kinds of mass collaborative opportunities work is that when our aspirations all align, that's what creates that shared vision. And I think it sounds to me like we do have a shared vision and we're each working at that from a little dif different perspective. And I think that's a beautiful thing. If we just keep doing it and supporting each other, then that's the best we can do. I'm not sure a concerted effort, an organized effort makes much difference beyond this kind of meeting where, I mean, I'm quite honored to get to meet uh, Colleen and Susan. I've not, I haven't met you before. And so I'm quite impressed with what you're doing. And I will to be a megaphone for your efforts because I think they're special. Thank you. Thanks so much. Exciting to meet you too. Colleen, do you want to? Uh... No, likewise. It's been a pleasure, um, Dr. Lyons, Susan, Kate, Ken. Thank you, Mopika, um, for putting this together. Um, I think really, I think Kate, I put it in the chat like collaboration. We need to talk about this with our kids and within our families. We need to speak up the intersection of whole health, right? And not just physical. Um, I think that's critical. So thank you again. Yeah, I have to echo what Colleen said, and that is a huge thanks to Opika. Um, you know, you've really been a lifeblood of the of the whole mass challenge. Um, you've been a real leader in in the uh, in all of the work that uh, we've all been doing it in that space and bringing us all together. And we're all grateful. So thank you for your. Oh, thank you guys. Thank you so much. Appreciate Again, it. What an honor, everyone. Thank thanks. you. Bye bye. See y'all. Right, take care. Bye. <laughs> bye. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Innovation and Care Collaboration Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, or Google, and join us each week as we invite in thought leaders in health and human services to discuss the latest trends in healthcare and technology.